found yourself in a situation in which you go into it thinking everything's fine and normal, and then after a few minutes some things start to happen and you start to think, what have I gotten myself into here? How did I get myself into this situation that doesn't seem like it's maybe going to end all that well. Have you ever been there? You know what I'm talking about? You didn't, you didn't, you didn't think it was going to be like that at the beginning. This happened to me like a lot when I was like, say, 13 through 15 years old. But that was usually because of my own foolishness and I should have been able to, even at that age, look at things ahead of time and say, how did I think that my doing this was not going to end badly? But sometimes as an adult that happens to us, and we don't really know why. We're not really aware of it until it's sometimes a little bit maybe too late. And then all we can think of is, how do I get myself out of this situation as calmly and quickly as possible? There were two times in, uh, in my ministry career where, um, the one I'm going to tell you about is when I was an associate minister, um, I had been with this church for maybe six, not this church, the church I was at, for about six months or so. And uh, the senior minister said, uh, hey, um, there's a young couple going to come in and they are, they're going to, um, they're having a wedding here at the church. Uh, but when I made these arrangements, I didn't realize I'm not available that weekend. So I'd like you to just take over for me, just do the premarital counseling with them. And, and then, you know, just, it's a, it's a quick, simple uh, a wedding ceremony. So just you know, take over. I'm like, okay, you know, I've done three of these, so I can, I can handle it. Um, and they came in and my first clue that I was in a situation that might not be that well is when they came for their first premarital counseling session and the bride-to-be brought her sister. Now, okay, I understand maybe this is, uh, I, I don't know, the absolute best friend and going to be the, the uh, maid of honor and all that, but it was weird. I'd never seen that before. The second thing that gave me a clue that I was in a situation which I might want to extricate myself from if I can was when during the first premarital counseling session, they began to argue loudly with each other. Loudly and angrily. In fact, I will say to you this, not only were they arguing with each other, there was profanity involved in the church during their premarital counseling session. And the sister got involved in it too. And I found myself looking around left and right, and what I was looking for were the cameras to let me know that I had accidentally wandered onto the set of the Jerry Springer show. It was a mess. 
Now, I don't know. I'm somehow all of a sudden louder. Are you hearing that? I don't know if it's something I'm doing. Did you guys change something upstairs? Yes? No? You did. Can you change it back, please? Okay. All right. All right. That just was freaking me out for a minute. I didn't know anything had happened. Um, I don't know where I was. Oh, yes. Um, yes. I do not recall, because this was 21 years ago, I do not recall if this was a thought that I only had in my head or if I spoke it out loud. But my thought was to turn to the, to the husband-to-be and say, run. Run as fast and as far as you can. I'm not sure if I actually said that, but I will tell you this. There was not a second premarital counseling session, and there was no wedding. It was a bad situation. Now, I, want, I told you that I've been in this situation twice, because at my very first church, where I was a mere youth minister, and I had never performed a wedding before, the senior minister there did the same thing. He had scheduled a, a wedding with some folks from outside of the church, and then realized, oh, I'm going to be on the other side of the planet when this wedding's going on. I'll dump it on the youth minister. I am beginning to think that this is a hazing ritual, which old senior ministers do to young ministers to break them in. Uh, and they never let me in on the joke. But in both situations, it was bad. It was a place where I was like, okay, this, there is no way on God's green earth that this is going to end well, short of divine intervention. Oh, I, I skipped something with the first, with the first couple. Uh, <laughs> the young lady who was being profanely uh, um, uh, screaming at her husband-to-be, I found out during this session that this was her second marriage. She was 20. And when I had a look on my face of a little bit of shock, she said, and I quote, Oh, that's nothing. My sister's on her third marriage. She's 22. Not a good situation for those folks. It was just not something that I think was going to go well short of God intervening. There is an entire book of the Old Testament which makes me uncomfortable. There are lots of places, lots of individual spots in the Bible where what's going on there makes me a little bit uncomfortable, but this one is an entire book. It's one of the prophets. Several times we read where God told the prophets whom he had called into his service to go and do something that to our minds didn't make sense. He told one of the prophets to lay on his left side for three years. 
For our point of view, this seems odd. But God told them to do these things, and they obeyed. And we, thousands of years later, and removed from the immediate situation, if we don't study why they said to do what he said to do, we can kind of be scratching our heads and going, what's going on here? I want us to take a look at the weird thing that this particular prophet was asked to do. Turn with me, if you would, to the Old Testament prophet of Hosea. Chapter 1, we'll start with verses 1 through 3. Hold off on your thoughts about why I'm saying what I'm saying until I have a chance to get through the whole sermon. The word of the Lord came to Hosea. I'm reading out of the ESV. The son of Beer, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the the daughter of Deblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. I feel like that's a lot of whoredoms in those verses. It kind of seems like a gratuitous use of the word. In the the NIV it says a promiscuous woman, and then it says that like an adulterous wife. The country has been unfaithful to God. Now, as I was reading through this, I thought, how would you like to be this guy to blame? Okay? Only mention of him in the entire Bible is for one purpose, to point out how bad his daughter was. And I think maybe, perhaps, he had an appropriate name because to blame might have been on him. Anyway, he is told to go to this woman and marry her. I think that, however, we get the point, even with the way it's worded. God is a bit unhappy with how Israel has treated him. He has ever been faithful to Israel. And they have gone after other small g gods instead of remaining faithful to the one who saved them, the one who created their nation, the one who brought them out of slavery to God the Father. It's just struck me incredibly difficult that God would ask his prophet to do this as pretty much a sermon illustration. I mean, yes, it's a sermon illustration that goes on for years and years as the prophet is preaching to the nation. It's the same illustration. But I think maybe a Venn diagram diagram might have gotten the point across. I don't know. I'm not God, and God's a little bit smarter than me. So we'll let his judgment stand in that. But it just... It's like... Maybe this was something that wasn't very pleasant. Call me crazy. 
But I can't help but think of the poor priest who's asked to perform this way because I've had my share of issues there. I can imagine him pulling oh, Hosea off to the side and saying, friend, I, I know that you are a, a good man of God, and so I, I'm not sure if you're aware of what's going on here. This girl, you know, she's got a reputation, and you may want to think twice before going through with this wedding. But Hosea was doing what he had been told by God He undoubtedly did not understand why he had to do this at first. However, he does what he's supposed to do. And for a time at least, it seems that his wife is faithful to him. The wording of the scripture makes it clear that his first child is actually his child. The next three, however, are worded in such a way that there is no connection between him and those children. This is directly in line with the point that is being made. Israel was true to God for a while, but then they turned their back on him and faithlessly sought after pagan idols and false gods, forgetting what he had done for them. Hosea's wife had been faithful to him for a time. And then she walked out on him, leaving him for at least one other man, perhaps several. For almost every man on earth, That would be the end of it. It's over. Because there's little that's more humiliating for a man. I'm assuming for women also. But this illustration of God's is in this way. There are absolutely some men who are forgiving enough that if their unfaithful wife came to her senses and came back, begging and pleading, they would take her back. But I would say not most. But God has Hosea do far more than just be willing to take her back after she repents. Look at what he is doing here as we read the the five verses of chapter 3. All of chapter 3 we're going to look at. It says, The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. The raisin cakes were a part of the worship process of these false gods. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethek of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. And I will behave the same toward you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or whole household gods 
Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will tr come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. Not only does Hosea allow Gomer to come back into his home, he goes and he gets her and he actually pays to redeem her. This is an amazing concept. I know some very good people. People who have been forgiving of an unfaithful spouse when they have repented and come back. I don't know anyone who would go to them while they're still committing adultery and they haven't even asked or inquired about forgiveness and pay off the debts that they've racked up and then bring them back, forgiving them and renewing their vows as a spouse. I don't know anyone who has ever done that. The reasoning here is clear for those who are willing to see it. Israel, God's people, have been unfaithful. But God doesn't just sit and wait to see if Israel would repent and come back to him. He goes and he calls them back. He takes them to himself remaking his covenant with them. This is what the sending of the prophets is all about. Israel has gone away and become unfaithful. And God sends prophets to them to call them to come back. They didn't come back. They didn't come to their senses on their own and say, what am I doing? And turn back to God. It took prophets going to them and saying, what are you doing? Come back to God. Repent and turn back to him and he will forgive you. Here's an interesting part of the story though. Clear back in chapter 1, verse 1. It lists the kings under which Hosea prophesied. There are four kings listed there. The first two, they were pretty decent guys, above average as far as kings of Judah went. But the third one, he was awful, awful. Did evil, wicked, nasty things, leading the nation into pagan idol worship. And then the last one, Hezekiah, was one of the greatest and best and most god fearing and obeying kings that ever was. He was better than David. Attempting to lead them back into true worship of God. Even going beyond what his ancestors had did. He was the only one, the first one, that tore down the high places where they were doing pagan, uh, uh, pagan worship and false, incorrect worship of God. This mirrors what the passage in chapter 3 says. But it goes on later to say something which doesn't make much sense from their point of view back at that time. Chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 says, For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, 
the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. Israel would indeed go without kings for a long time. Their last kings would be put to death and then they would be hauled off into captivity where no priest would be performing the temple sacrifices. Nor would they be worshipping false gods while they were in captivity. They would be in Babylon for 70 years. But all this happened long, long after Hosea was dead. And the strangest part of this prophecy is where it says afterward the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God, and get this, and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. David? David their king? They will seek out David? In Hosea's day, David had been dead and buried for hundreds of years. And he's making a prophecy for hundreds of years in the future. How is it that they would come to seek David their king alongside when they're seeking to return to God? Well, you know the answer. It's the answer that this whole section is actually pointing toward. It isn't just Israel who God would go seek out and redeem, paying the price for their debts. It's you and it's me. It's all of mankind that God created and loved and adored who had left him. As another prophet has said, in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 through 7. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted yet did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is silent so he did not open his mouth. I think I know why God had Hosea marry a prostitute. It wasn't just because it was a perfect situation as a symbol for the nation of Israel, although that is perfect. I think it's perfect for all of us. Is there anything which would make us feel lower about ourselves? Is there a situation in which people would feel more that they are completely worthless and irredeemable? 
I don't know of one. The world feels alone and worthless. And like there's no reason to go on. They feel like they don't deserve saving. But they do. Because God believes they're worth saving. I'm going to show you a video here. Cody, would you get the lights, please? It's a video that really touched me this past week while I was writing the sermon. Go ahead and kill all the lights. Can you guys kill this light bar, please? Go ahead. Unmute the soundboard there, please, guys. Turn it up, please. Just go ahead and make it large and pit play and I'll narrate. Bus driver, school bus, sees a woman on the edge of a bridge. He stops his bus and he gets off and he kneels down and he prays. If you look closely here, you can see a man just walks right past her. And then a bicyclist also just rides right past as she's ready to jump down into oncoming traffic. But the bus driver doesn't. And I want you to understand something. It's contrary to law for a bus driver to leave their bus while students are on board. So he risked his job to save this young woman. She had come to the point where she just felt life wasn't worth living and she wasn't worth saving. And he says here, I was brought up in the church. And you just be kind to people and show them love. And that's what he did. While everyone else in the world ignored a woman about to end her life. He took time to save her because he felt she had value even if she didn't feel that she did. Thanks, guys. Can you get the lights back on? I usually end my sermons 
by asking anyone who hasn't accepted Christ to come and do so. And that would be absolutely fine if that happened today. But I want to end it a little differently today. I want to challenge you to go into a world of hurting, crying, miserable people who don't think that anyone loves them because they're not worth loving. And make sure that they know that God loves them and that you love them and that God and you want them to spend eternity with Him because He values them and they're worth saving. Be this bus driver who risked his very career to go out and talk this woman off the ledge and then sat with her and shared encouraging words and had prayer with her. Be that person to a world that looks at themselves as worthless and not worth living. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for what you've done for us. Help us be your hands and your feet and your eyes and your mouth in a world full of hurting people. People that just see no purpose in life and that no one cares. Help us show them that there are those who do care because you care. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.